Good morning, Doug. I'm here with uh, Doug Weil, uh, partner co-founder of uh, Otis Weil, a uh, New York-based uh, but global uh, um, capital raising company and uh, uh, a dear friend and, and a terrific professional. Uh, thank you for joining us, Doug, and I look forward to uh, our conversation. Thank you for having me. You bet. Doug, uh, before we start, uh, where, where do we find you today? And uh, how are you uh, faring with the pandemic and social distancing and staying at home? And uh, how do you stay fit and sane? Okay, so um, I'm actually uh, in Vermont. Uh, I'm based out of New York. Uh, and in early March, uh, we grabbed our two uh, young adult daughters and uh, came up to Vermont to hide out a bit. So um, it's been, uh, it'll be eight weeks next week that we've been up here. And, um, you know, how do I stay sane? Work's been very busy, so that helps. I like to be, you know, engaged and have a, a uh, you know, real activity during the day. Uh, I have been exercising probably more than I ever have in my life, and I find that to be a, a good stress uh, reliever and, and then long walks at night with my wife. So combination of things, just, you know, keeping busy. My daughters are... Uh, in college and graduate school, uh, and they are studying online. So that keeps them reasonably busy during the day. So we, we kind of all have our routine, and then we come together and have dinner at night. And it's probably the most dinners we've had as a family since our children were little. So right. there are some positives out of this. Right, good. You know, but it's sort of a tongue-in-cheek a bit that uh, nine months from now we might have a baby boom, not likely the case in your household, but uh, in other households, uh, and maybe in three or four months, we might have a rash of divorces for those who just couldn't stand uh, uh, being with one another for that long. But by and large, I can say my personal experience and many of the people I, I talk to, I have similar experiences to you. This has brought families together, relationships have gotten stronger, uh, people rediscovered one another, especially us baby boomers and uh, empty nesters, and uh, that uh, on balance, uh, while there are lots of bad things going on in the world. This may be a bit of a silver lining in the uh, conditions uh, in which we'll. A lot of our relationships, especially business relationships, um, all these Zoom calls with kids climbing on people's laps, dogs jumping and barking. And, you know, it kind of takes a little bit of the formality out of it, which right. isn't bad. It's great for our company to, you know, connect like that. Of course, we'd all rather be in person. Um, I find that we're able to connect with friends periodically, you know, Zoom dates, Zoom cocktail hours. And so you make, and I think that, that those are some of the positives that hopefully come out of this. Thank you, Doug. Well, uh, I wanna jump in. So uh, I have a, a series of rapid fire questions uh, that I'd love to get your take on it. Uh, this is a uh, quick pace. Make sure that, uh, uh, we and our audience okay, stay informed with uh, uh, the best input they can get. And um, maybe before we start, you can give us a quick overview of uh, what does Hodes Weil uh, do and uh, what was the company's uh, scope and operations before COVID-19? Yeah, so our primary business and what most people know Hodes Weil for is institutional private placement. So we act as a placement agent uh, for real estate fund and asset management firms and we operate globally. So we have a team of about 33 people 
Um, our headquarters is in New York. We also have an office in Denver and Hong Kong and also London. So we operate globally in terms of the types of funds and strategies that we work on and then also the institutions that we're trying to connect to around the world. So you said this is what people know you for. What else uh, do you do that people are not quite as uh, maybe sure. on the radar? Sure. So I, our second main uh, area of focus is on the advisory side. So coming out of the GFC, when we first set the firm up, uh, we were very active as a restructuring advisor, generally related to uh, fund-related um, portfolios or operating platforms. I, I to summarize it, kind of GPLP situations. We were uh, brought on by uh, in some cases, general partners, in some cases, groups of limited partners to help them work through a range of issues. That then evolved into strategic advisory where we started to work with managers as they were thinking about how to grow their businesses. Uh, and then thereafter, it grew into an M&A practice. So we've been very active advising uh, fund management platforms in selling their businesses, all or a portion of their business. We've now uh, completed seven uh, sell side assignments. So that's a, a pretty active area. We'll see how active that is um, post-COVID. We may revert back to a lot of uh, restructuring work, but the advisory practice uh, um, is uh, very complementary to our placement business. It's, it's a lot of the same counterparties, both the institutions and the managers. Well, clearly you're creating a lot of value for your clients and for the investors that you serve and uh, having this multiple areas of uh, activities both uh, stabilizes your firm and diversifies your uh, revenues and economic base and also provides more of a one-stop shop to many of the people that, with whom you work. So congratulations, you have definitely uh, come a long way over, over the 10 years of uh, your short history and uh, I'm sure uh, we're gonna hear even more about your firm in the future. So how, of course, um, how has uh, COVID-19 changed uh, your business? Well, it's been quite dramatic, uh, to say the least. Uh, first, uh, we went remote in, um, in early March. I'd say we probably had a, a better view into the potential impact of COVID uh, through going into it and coming out of it. Um, so we are all working remote, although I would say Hong Kong is now coming back into the office. Um, we have moved a lot of what were face-to-face -face meetings, a lot of travel, a lot of people on planes to calls and uh, Zoom videos or other kinds of videos. And, um, and we've just been navigating the markets. I think the past four weeks has been uh, a fact-finding uh, uh, mode for most institutions and managers. There's so many questions that are still unanswered. What we're trying to do now is really connect institutions to managers just to talk about what's going on in the market, not necessarily pitch them the next fund or separate account, but give them the benefit of hearing from some of the experts on the ground because I think their experience and knowledge is um, perhaps anecdotal because we're all learning as we go but it's really valuable. So that's where we've been focusing a lot of our time right now. We of course hope that the capital allocations will begin to flow again. Um, that's, you know, that is our bread and butter. Um, but 
in the meantime, we want to be um, an intermediary in these conversations, and that's what we're really focused on. So what are you hearing in those conversations? What are you learning about uh, the state of the world and the outlook for the next three, six, 12 months? Yeah. So I'd say from the managers, a few things. Um, um, they all have many concerns about their businesses, uh, rent collections being one of them. I would say April was uh, much better than expected uh, in terms of rent collections across the board, across sectors. Um, May is really what everyone's more worried about, and, and, and rent collections are happening right now, you know, this week and next. So we will learn more. Um, I'm hearing from managers that their lenders are being very patient, um, that they're not putting any pressure on them at this point. And we're also hearing that um, there isn't a clear indication of what anything is worth right now. So there's no assets trading, um, except for situations where there's something related to the debt that's forcing participants to the table, the transaction market has, is really frozen. Most managers that I talk to uh, don't think that the distress and the repricing of the market will occur for six to 12 months, if not a couple of years. And that goes back to everyone's experience during the GFC. On the other side of the table from institutions, um, we've been, um, Pleased to see that everyone is fairly measured in their response right now. Again, they're in collection mode, trying to assess what the risks are in their portfolio, what their liquidity requirements are. But we have not seen it. Uh, there has been some news about uh, limited partners defaulting on fund commitments. We have not seen that. We firmly believe that is not the case despite some of the uh, headlines in the press. Um, and we're also starting to hear from some of the larger institutions that they're beginning to think about offense. And this gives us some comfort that the liquidity is there when the market starts to uh, come back to life and assets start to trade, uh, that there will be some liquidity support in this marketplace. Is uh, the majority of the players with whom you communicate and talk, listen to, and, and do they generally expect the, a second wave or do they, is there a base case outlook that we are now at the early stages of recovery and we're going to recover in a relatively orderly fashion? I think the, the view on that point is pretty wide based. And what we're seeing well, from managers and institutions is scenario analysis. Show me what this looks like if it's a V or a W or a U, if it's, you know, if this goes for two years versus one year, uh, it's very challenging. It's challenging for a manager to, to do a five-year projection of cash flows. The variables that go into that right now are so hard to assess that that's why I think you're seeing four or five different scenarios when somebody puts forward the prospects for their, their portfolio. So investors want to know what managers are thinking and managers are communicating uh, a point of view about what, what comes up. What is, in your view, what is your assessment of the consensus outlook regarding a second wave or not and the implications on uh, value opportunities and uh, investing in capital markets activities for the next uh, foreseeable future? Yeah. So we've heard investors and managers talk about a potential devaluation of 10 to 20%. Uh, 
in, in assets. Um, Green Street's reporting um, as of last week that off the peak, we're down about 10 to 11% in gross asset value. So we've already seen a pretty meaningful repricing. Um, I think the only um, benchmark that participants in the industry have to look to is what happened during the GFC and, and um, uh, peak to trough, there was a devaluation of 37%. Now, not a lot traded at the bottom at the trough uh, and the market came back quite quickly, but I think that's the outside range that people are starting to think about as a potential downturn. I would say the industry though is much better positioned operationally and from a leverage standpoint is a lot more conservative. Um, the operating fundamentals were much stronger. And, you know, will they come back is a huge question. But overall, the industry was in reasonably good shape. It was well-balanced heading into uh, this event. So the question is, you know, does it come back quickly? Does all this demand come back quickly? Do people get back on planes? Do they go to hotels? Do they go to restaurants? Uh, those are all the real unknowns for everyone right now in the market. Right. Okay. And so... From your point of view, then, uh, what is the outlook, uh, the case that you are kind of building your business on? You may have a backup plan if things go uh, differently, but what it is that you're expecting will happen in the market and in your business? Yeah. So we're, we're already seeing indications of this, um, and this is informing the way we steer our business. But we believe institutions uh, will come back to the asset class faster than they did during the GFC. And when they do, they're most likely to be focused on high return, distress-oriented opportunities. At the other end of the spectrum, core funds are gonna see, we believe, a lot less interest. Uh, you've seen some redemptions uh, pick up in the open-end funds, and that may pick up as well if this is similar to the GFC. So for some institutions, I think it's a recycling from lower return strategies to high return. Um, we've heard some managers out pitching strategies in mid-teens and institutions have uh, reacted that that's just not high enough. In order to get me to come off the sidelines, I need to see something that's 18 to 20 percent uh, returns. So that's our view. As we steer our business, we're, we're looking to some of the managers that are uh, multi-sector, can take advantage of distress, uh, have a long track record of having navigated or uh, having navigated through a market like this, such as the GFC, that's really important. So that's what that's one category. The other is um, tremendous continued interest for logistics and industrial around the world. So we've several things we're working on, and we continue to focus on that. Anything digital related um, from a uh, digital traffic standpoint, digital, digital usage is is really going up. So that includes data centers. Uh, cell towers, cables, things like that are of uh, real interest because the macro fundamentals are so strong today. Right. And I think also multifamily. Multifamily um, is viewed as potentially, you know, may, may have a dip here, but should be well positioned. People still need a place to live. Uh, they're probably going to be more likely to rent versus buy. Um, and there wasn't a tremendous amount of overbuild heading into this um, downturn. So multifamily may come out of this a little bit faster than other sectors. 
coming into this uh, over the last few years pattern that we observed, Doug, was that uh, limited partners were uh, working on rationalizing the number of relationships that they have, whether it's uh, uh, you know funds or uh, separate accounts or joint ventures, but whichever, however they were deploying capital, they wanted to have fewer, larger relationships, easier to manage, uh, more alignment of interest, maybe even better fees, et cetera. Do you see that changing in any significant way over the next five, 10 years, or at least the next year or two? I, I see a continuation of that trend. Um, I, I think investors, as you said, are looking to do more with fewer managers. Um, and as the capital, in our view, starts to move towards distress and uh, multi-strategy uh, vehicles, uh, they're going to lean towards the very large managers that are on to you know, fund means that the boutique managers and the mid-cap managers are going to be at an even greater disadvantage in terms of capturing capital allocations. It's already been a very unbalanced market with 10 managers collecting about 50% of annual allocations. Um, that's out of over 2,000 managers in the market. So it is really weighted towards the large managers. And to your point, I think I think that trend continues, if not um, um, right. even more prominent. Right. So in that in that environment, what does uh, what does it take for a uh, new manager or even an existing but small manager to uh, survive and thrive? A sector specialist and an operator. Um, so you can deliver um, um, real value add returns and alpha to an institution to a client, uh, or you need to, uh, if you're a new manager, be coming out of another platform where you've got, you know, real name recognition and a track record uh, and history that people can look to. We did see a number of new managers uh, really get formed following the GFC and some larger financial institutions that had really never been in real estate entered the market um, and got to real scale in the past 12 years. So I think we'll see a change in the landscape of managers. Uh, if you're a boutique or small cap manager, I think you need to really be differentiated and also have a strategy that has favorable macro fundamentals. Don't think you want to be you know, pitching something where the fundamentals, uh, the macro fundamentals are working against you and also try and convince someone that you're a good operator and fund manager. Right. It, it stands to reason that many of the limited partners by now have formed the relationships that they want to have. In fact, maybe they have the embarrassment of riches, having too many relationships relative to our uh, earlier conversation. So what is the, again, for, for new players coming into the market trying to raise first fund or first uh, SMA, uh, how do they, uh, what does it take for them to uh, stand out. You mentioned something about having uh, some differentiators, uh, but maybe you can give us more specifics about what sectors are more interesting or what uh, performance track records what does it take, what story uh, one needs to have in order to get there. Because I do get a lot of questions from folks that are ha have been relying upon friends and family and small capital or even high net worth individuals of smaller mid-sized scale that where the treadmill of raising the capital is painful and difficult and they would love to get into uh, a more institutional capital base, but they need to know how difficult it is, which you just described. 
tribe. And, but they also need to know what does it take to penetrate and what does it take to get in there. So what's your advice to those kinds of guys? Um, usually, um, well, first, we always tell everyone how hard it is to raise a fund. It's extremely hard. Uh, and it should be hard. Uh, it shouldn't be easy to go raise institutional money. Um, what it really takes is, um, in addition to being having a differentiated strategy, is um, you, you need to really um, convince institutions that what you're offering from a strategy standpoint is something that they don't have access to today. That's how you most differentiate yourself. Or if they have access to it, they're getting access through an allocator and they're paying two levels of fees. So therefore, by going direct to an operator, uh, that you're eliminating what could be three or 400 basis points of, of, um, of uh, dilution in your return. To be in your favor, I think, to be successful raising capital, uh, you need to get out on the road and create these relationships. They're very personal relationships. Uh, you're not going to sell someone a, you know, uh, on a fund opportunity through a phone call or an email, uh, and it remains to be seen if a Zoom video will do that. Right. So these relationships are very personal. You need to get out and um, and build these relationships and and recognize if you're going to go into the institutional capital management business that you're almost you're really setting up a new line of business and you have to manage those relationships even when you're not raising capital. Uh, and sometimes the best time to create a relationship is when you're not offering anything to an institution. So um, it's very time intensive. Uh, the, these um, institutions want to meet with the key decision makers and principals. So you can't just have you know, junior staff uh, making cold calls to institutions. And it's extremely time consuming. Um, that said, it's a great way, as you point out, to finance a business. Um, if you do a nice job managing capital on behalf of an institution, they tend to continue to um, uh, allocate capital back to you and you can end up with a flagship series of funds and it's a great way to finance a business as well as incentivize and pay your team. Right. Because then you've got a carrier's currency that you can pay to your team. We heard a lot over the last few years about um, fee squeeze, uh, about institutions becoming more sophisticated and uh, more careful about uh, the structures. Uh, where do you think that's going? What should a first time uh, uh, or somebody entering the business expect if they have been getting one and a half percent or two percent asset management fee from smaller investors and a 80% or, or, or more of the profits? How does that world change when you start thinking about a, a fund or a separate account with an institution for direct investment programs. Right. So, you know, fee discounts are, 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 are a big part of the industry uh, and they will continue to be, especially in a downturn. Um, I don't think managers should be shy going out and asking for one and a half and 20 because that is kind of the rack rate, if you will. Um, and then it's really a decision and a negotiation with um, key institutions that might lead a first closing uh, where you make the decision and we counsel our clients on these kinds of decisions to give a fee break in order to, to recognize their early support for the, the uh, capital that you're raising. So discounts for size of commitment, speed of commitment, and also um, ongoing support of the overall organization. Increasingly, we're seeing fee discounts given for uh, institutions that support 
institutions want to do more with fewer managers. And one benefit of that is fee breaks for scale for supporting multiple products. Right. Thank you. Well, that, that was very helpful. Um, you mentioned earlier that you, uh, one of the ways you stay informed about what's happening in the market is you talk to uh, your colleagues uh, around the, the world, uh, your, your clients, your investors, uh, other managers. Uh, what do you read uh, in addition to that? What, what do you do to keep up uh, other than that? Uh, what do you read? Uh, who do you watch? Uh, who do you talk to that is not within that universe to stay informed and uh, get on top of things? Yeah. It's a good question. In this world today, there, there's so much content to right. focus on. Um, but I, I, uh, I, I look to the major um, newspapers for my daily content, my global view, if you will. And I'm pretty good about uh, getting through those every day. I would say that my um, commute used to be about an hour on the train, and that was a lot of good reading time. My commute now is about a minute from uh, you know kitchen to, to where I'm sitting right now. So I don't have that, that time necessarily and I have to carve it out and it's more of a challenge. I also um, read all or as much of the trade publications as I can uh, from all over the world. And our team is constantly circulating headlines and articles and that keeps us all really engaged. Uh, and back to, you know, to what we hear from our team, we've got, folks talking to institutions and managers all over the world every day. Um, and we encourage everyone to write a call note to the team uh, based on these conversations. And virtually every, every conversation that takes place, I learn something, whether it's about a, a new manager or institution or a trend in the market or an anecdote. Um, that to me is how we really stay informed as a team. And it's part of the power of having a global platform and this information flow. But I have to say, you know, it's, um, it's a lot to keep up. Um, I, I have begun to limit the amount of TV news that I watch. And I'm trying not to watch before I go to bed because it just stresses me out. There's not a whole lot of news on TV news, uh, sadly. A lot of commentary, but not a whole lot of news. That's a whole other topic. That was, my, that was my personal point of view, by the way. Um, I agree. So, Looking around the corner, Doug, what do you think uh, the new normal looks like when this all washes out? In two, in two three, four years, uh, how does Hodus Wild's world uh, change uh, compared to today? What's the new normal and what's the new, new thing you guys are going to have to do? Well, you know, our business is about face-to-face -face meetings and relationships. So that's the biggest challenge or unknown for us. We can't all get on planes anytime soon uh, with our clients or without. It's really hard to build these relationships um, around the world. So that's what we are constantly thinking about. We've done a good job moving some of these discussions to Zoom calls uh, and videos. And I think um, it has worked well, surprisingly well, for the past almost 60 days. Question is, is that um, feasible uh, in, in terms of how you establish and build relationships um, going forward? Um, I, I do think that institutions want to hear from us and other market participants. 
Uh, we were initially concerned about making calls because we worried that no one wanted to have any conversations, but it's actually the opposite. People want to connect. They want to hear what others are thinking. As we think about our business going forward, uh, big question is how much of the um, marketing process might be moved online or made digital. So um, it's something the industry has always talked about. I think we can streamline a lot of what we do, uh, not all of it, um, but a lot by being able to deliver content electronically. So we are, um, we are now working with our managers to post videos um, that we can uh, push out to the market for institutions to uh, look at uh, as an introduction to the manager or as an update on uh, on the market opportunity or what they're seeing in the market on the ground. So I think more of that is going to be integral to our business going forward. I just question, you know, if we can't all get on planes anytime soon, how feasible will it be to introduce a new manager to an institution and really help them advance that relationship if they can't sit face to face? That's the real unknown right now. But I think what I'm taking away from the conversation is that your outlook is that more of what you used to do in person gets done in virtual, not 100%, but more of it will be done virtually by uh, Zoom and pre-recording things and sending them out and adding dimensions to the materials that are being shared that are just more than just uh, uh, a deck, a PowerPoint deck, but also some more uh, conversations and videos and recordings that provide more dimensions of the company, not necessitating that face-to-face -face interaction until later and maybe less frequently even later. I think that's exactly right. And um, look, I, my, my personal view is if, if there is a vaccine and when there's, let's say when there habits from a business standpoint. I'm not sure I'll, I'll be on as many planes as I used to be on. Right. Uh, maybe I'll think twice about the necessity of a certain trip. But um, to me, the, this recovery and whether we all go back to the old normal or something like it comes down to a vaccine. And I think we're all, we just so badly want to get back to the way we used to live and conduct business. My sense is if there's a truly a vaccine, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll start to revert to the way we used to all operate. Right. I suspect you're right. And I expect that the changes will be more on the margins than in the core, uh, that the basic, uh, at the end to get a deal over the finish line, it'll take the same more or less steps and you may change the sequence or you may change some of the, uh, method of interactions between beginning and end, but ultimately, you need to meet face-to-face, -face. you need to interact, you need to form a personal connection that you can't just do that over Zoom and via uh, pre-recorded uh, YouTube messages. So, and you need to go see a property. And you right? need to Who's going to buy or invest in a property without really going to see right. it? Maybe, maybe uh, you know, videos and aerials yeah. will help, but there, you know, this, when you see a piece of real estate, you get, it's always going to be better than a video or something that's been presented to you in a brochure. So besides changes to your business, we just described some of them. When you look at the investment management landscape, uh, again, kind of play out what you think happens two, three years from today. How does the landscape look any different than it is today? 
I think we'll have uh, fewer managers uh, in the market for sure. I think we will have more sector focused managers. So a group of multifamily specialists, industrial specialists, there are you know, more than a handful in each sector, but I think we'll see uh, the emergence of more uh, uh, participants by sector. I think you'll see uh, real specialists and niche uh, managers for uh, data centers, lab space, all these kind of alternative strategies are going to continue to emerge and grow. Um, and, and you'll see the big managers get bigger. Um, it's quite staggering how large some of these managers are today. Um, if you um, watch Blackstone's quarterly or listen to Blackstone's quarterly reports and, re and, and read their supplemental information, they have 48 billion of dry powder right now. It's staggering. Yeah. I mean, it's really amazing. And that can be deployed anywhere around the world. So I think, you know, firms like that continue to dominate the market. And then hopefully there are new managers that are, um, that are able to establish themselves as, right? There, there's a very large market for customized separate accounts and joint ventures. And that's what we often counsel managers that come in and want to raise a fund. Have you thought about a separate account or a joint venture structure? We think that's a great way to run a business. We usually start with what are your objectives? And then let's work towards what the right capital structure is. And very often, you know, a fund is, is just not even, whether they could raise it or not, it's really not the right vehicle for that. Right. So I think in addition to the manager landscape changing, we'll continue to see the evolution of new kinds of structures and products that accommodate both investor needs and also managers' objectives. Along those lines, Doug, I've observed in the last few years uh, a, some, some uh, emphasis on the, the part of large limited investors uh, away from rotation of capital, investing in open-end vehicles, whether they're commingled or not, for the purpose of uh, buying, fixing, selling to borrow somebody's uh, uh, um, trademark and uh, into buying, fixing, and, and holding. Uh, do you see that changing over the next uh, few years? I think the next two or three years may be more distress-oriented, so faster trading of assets might, might be um, uh, more palatable to institutions, but you're right, heading into, or, or pre-COVID, a, a big uh, concern or issue for institutions was how quickly they were getting their capital back after buy, fix, and sell. And the ability to uh, potentially own those assets longer led to the evolution of products, not just open-end funds, but build-to-hold structures that worked for the manager and also for the institution. Uh, in many cases, they were doing, uh, working with a manager, or financing a manager that was executing a value-add plan or development and ultimately selling an asset that they looked at and would love to own longer term but the manager needed to sell it because the vehicle was structured as such or they had to get their incentives paid that way. Yeah. So we started to see a real evolution of different structures and I think that will continue and is an important part of the industry. And again, it comes back to not everything is a commingled fund. There are yeah. lots of great structures out there. Three quick exit questions. Um, from the last few years, who would you consider to be
a great execution of a strategy, somebody, uh, a company or an individual to, uh, that you admire to, to watch and follow what they do because you think that sets a standard for excellence and uh, creativity? Now, looking to Blackstone, uh, they have managed to read the tea leaves better than anyone uh, and do that both globally and up and down the risk curve. Um, so watching them through uh, post-COVID is going to be you know, really interesting. Um, they are, the scale of that organization enables them to access deals more efficiently, analyze them. I think their data analytics is something that the market doesn't fully appreciate. So I think, I think that's one. But there's a great, um, I don't want to say bench of talent, but there, 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 there's a lot of great talent in the industry across many, many managers. And I think you'll see some of them really shine during this next cycle, um, take advantage of some of the buying opportunities, whether it's dislocation or distress. Um, there will be an opportunity. And there's some really great talent. What would be a shame it for the industry is if these newer managers don't get the opportunity to step to the plate because I do think there's as I said some great talent out there. Good, thank you. Um, what uh, in this past month or so <clears throat> what has surprised you? What, what world events or uh, real estate uh, capital market events have surprised you uh, looking back just a month or two? Um, I'd say what has surprised me pleasantly is that um, is the engagement with institutions and um, and their uh, willingness to start thinking about new investment strategies. Yeah. I thought there'd be a much harder pause in the market, and I'm not saying all institutions are active uh, like they were two months ago, but um, there are more institutions that are focused on new opportunities than we saw right after the GFC, for sure. Yeah, <clears throat> that, that makes sense. I, 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 it resonates with me. I do wonder a little bit whether this is just an indication of how early we are, we are in the game and how quickly at least the stock market has corrected and recovered, that maybe there wasn't enough time for pain to actually be felt and uh, uh, work its way through the institutions uh, balance sheets and investment programs, time will tell. So same question, but now looking forward. If we were to reconvene at the beginning of June, what do you expect will have been the big surprise about May? Well, I'll look uh, maybe a bit inward on this question. Um, I have been uh, uh, really pleased with the ability of our organization to be able to continue to function uh, and uh, and stay very focused and serve our clients and um, and every week honestly I'm, I'm even staying connected as a group so I think next month when it's 90 days I, I expect we'll feel even better uh, about our team and our ability to stay focused um, and, and hopefully by then we'll have some outlook as to when we'll all be in a room together again. Yeah. Thank you, Doug. This has been a great conversation. Is there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover today? Um, well, I would, one observation I have, and we're, we're actually gonna put a, a paper out 
um, on this uh, on this topic uh, is that I, I think um, the real estate private funds industry, the closed end funds, I think are, are much better positioned uh, heading into this downturn, whatever it looks like, versus a global financial crisis. There's less leverage in the funds. There's smarter leverage. There's less cross collateralization and use of recourse. Um, interest rates are lower, so of course debt service coverage was better heading into this. The governance and funds has really been tightened up over the past 12 years. Yeah. Funds have on average 10 to 15% of uninvested capital. So all these um, uh, elements should position funds to, to navigate this storm better. And when you look back in the GFC, if that's a lesson that we can all look to, the funds that are able to hold on to their portfolios that didn't uh, liquidate at the bottom or, or have to be forced to do um, uh, dilutive recapitalizations and they rode out the cycle, they came back strong and all, not all, but most delivered over a one times multiple. So um, that's, that was a lesson learned. And I think overall the industry is better positioned now if this looks like the global financial crisis. Of course, there's a scenario where it's a lot worse, but I feel pretty good about the industry and its evolution over the past 12 years and how it has positioned uh, fund managers for whatever the storm is going to look like. That's a great optimistic uh, view to uh, end on. <laughs> it's uh, sunny hope, outside. <laughs> it's sunny outside, exactly. I hope we can have you back uh, in a few weeks and catch up and see what changed in the world. In the meantime, I thank you for your time and for sharing your wisdom and, uh, and insights. So thank you very much, Doug. Have a great weekend and uh, look forward to talking soon. Thank you, Gotti. Really appreciate it. Stay safe. You bet. You too. Bye, Doug.